Welcome to the Postpartum Wow, the show where moms share their raw, unfiltered postpartum moments. I'm your host, Sarah Allen, and I'm a first-time mom who was completely broadsided by postpartum depression and anxiety. I'm here to show the not-so-pretty side of becoming a parent, and I hope you hear something that resonates with you because, let's be honest, the postpartum experience is nothing like we imagined. But along with the struggles come glimpses of hope. So buckle up and hold on tight, and let's get to it. Welcome back, friends. Thanks for hopping on. Uh, this week's episode is a, is a special one. We've got a mama whose story is uh, is lengthy, but is, is really good to hear and um, could be very helpful to a lot of moms out there who have experienced uh, good pregnancies, not so great pregnancies, um, infant loss, things of that nature. And uh, in light of that, we are going to break up this mama's story into two parts. So part one is being released uh, today. And part two, we will release uh, next Tuesday. So stay tuned for that. Um, and as my typical trigger warning goes, if you are in the middle of postpartum depression or anxiety, uh, just be mindful that this episode contains a lot of content on that info and uh, infant loss as well. So be mindful of that as you listen. Um, but without further ado, this is part one of Sarah M's story. All right. Welcome back, friends. Uh, today, I've got someone I've known for a lot of years. Um, not only do I know this person, but she is actually a relative. Um, she's a fellow mom. I actually was, a, I guess I was, it was a babysitter slash nanny thing for their their first baby. Their first baby was born when I was a teenager. And I come from a homeschool family. So there was an opportunity to do like a a learning experience of taking care of a child. So uh, they approached me and uh, worked together. I think I was with you guys for like two years. But anyway, I'm rambling. I'm going to introduce you guys to uh, a family member who is also named Sarah. And I'm going to give her the floor to tell us a little bit about herself. Well, from the now Sarah May to the uh, first Sarah May. So, yes, my name is Sarah May. And we have, my husband and I have six children. Hannah is 15 and a half. Abby is 14. Um, then Noah is 12 and a half. And Ada is almost 11. James is nine and Libby is six and a half. So uh, quite a bit, quite quickly. Um, <clears throat> and I think another thing about my family is that not only have I had six kids, but I've had 11 pregnancies. So I've had um, one stillbirth as well as three miscarriages. And so my, I guess you could say birthing stories and uh, mothering stories are very wide variety. Um, <clears throat> having six kids in different situations, many different situations, as well as having um, lots of other stuff in between. So kind of complicated. Each one is so different. Um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, they have 10 kids. They've done it the same way 10 times. No, everyone is so, 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 so different. Um, <clears throat> just the way they act, the kid themselves, but also so much each pregnancy and each birth, um, by far. And then my, um, way of handling things after each birth was quite different. So, and a lot of different scenarios. <clears throat> so, yeah. Yeah. That, that was that was something I've noticed too, and getting to and making mom friends is that it seems like, even though yeah they may have, they have a you know quite a few children. It seems like after every single birth, their experience is completely different. And you know when you're when you're growing up, you don't you don't think that way. You just think oh yeah they got a lot of kids they know what they're doing. Um, right. Well yeah they might, but that doesn't mean they don't still get a curveball thrown. Yeah, we got the kid number. And I feel like, I mean, totally. You got to kid number five and I went. Go ahead. Um, well, I think we've got toddlerhood but down by now. And then, no, that child redefined toddlerhood at child number five. So, yeah. <laughs> it happens. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it's interesting to watch from the sidelines having already had one mm -hmm. that I'm just like, uh... Maybe she's fine as an only child. I don't know yet. Uh, I, I, <laughs> but yeah, totally. Like going back, it's 
You're good. No, I was say, you know, from from our experience and from many experiences that I've seen, number two is a whole new excitement. <laughs> so uh, number one's usually you're, you're just you and you're so, so cute. You hit number two and they're sweet, but whoo, they have a lot of heart and a lot of energy. Every single number two child that I've ever met and they can love the most and they can be the most wild. So, but it's a good balance. So, and then after that, all bets. Yeah. And it's, it's so, <laughs> all bets are off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I feel you talk about, you talk about feeling old or feel like I'm aging myself when you said that Hannah was 15 and a half. Hannah was the one that I, I babysat. And yeah, every every time I hear how old she is now, I'm just like, good grief. <laughs> um, it honestly does not feel that, that long ago when, when I was holding that little girl. But I digress. Uh, let's go back. Let's go back to that. Um I understand you had you had pregnancies before Hannah, but before you even began your motherhood journey, um, what were your, some of your expectations of motherhood? Um, so I think I had pretty realistic expectations of motherhood just because I had seen, you know, a lot of different families, watched a lot of different families through many years um, with families. And I knew from early on, I wanted to have a big family because um, to me growing up, the happiest families I saw were the biggest families I saw and they just seemed to have so much fun. And I could tell it was not easy on the moms always, but the families enjoyed it. They had a lot of family love together and I just wanted that for my family. And I'm kind of teased that having a big family was a um, prenuptial agreement for me and Caleb because, um, you know, dating early on, he said, how many kids do you want? I said, I think I asked him maybe how many kids he wanted. He said three. And I said, oh, no, no, no. I want like eight. And he's like, how about six? Now, the funny thing is he does not remember that now. But I very clearly remember that. And he, he said, how about six? And in the end, when we get to the end of my story that I can tell you, um, that's who God gave us. And that was not, six was not, ending at six then was not our choice. But that was a choice that God had for us at the end of six. So it's kind of cool just to think back in that story and know that, you know, he knew that God knew that ahead of time and kind of just placed that desire within our hearts as it was. So just kind of neat that way. Um, so I, my parent, I think part of my history is, as well is that um, when I was little, my parents, you know, had the whole idea of we're going to have two kids and that's it, two and done. And then they did. But then years later, I was about nine and my mom, maybe even 10. My mom was like, wait a minute, maybe we want more. And then my little brother was born when I was 11 and a half. So I was very much more aware of everything that was going on. I was aware of even their, my parents' you know, decision to change, to make some changes to be able to have him. And I was very aware of when my mom lost a baby before him. Um, and, and then when my mom lost, uh, I guess it was three after him, three or four babies after him. Um, and so I had miscarriages. I was very aware of that because I was at that very vulnerable, early, you know, changing kind of phase in my life. And but also the decision for them to um, forgo birth control at that point because they felt like that that was not what was right for them. Um, and so that I think was very formidable for me as well. Um, so I think a lot of that was parts that were feeding into my you know, concepts of motherhood and the desire for motherhood, just the desire that it was a normal thing to have a desire for motherhood. Um, That was a huge piece for me because all those things fell at that extremely formidable age for me. Um, I think I started, you know, hit, hit uh, womanhood while my mom was pregnant with my little brother. So that had a huge piece for me. Um, Yeah. So that was kind of my background there. And then when um, when I was 14 or 15, the, uh, a doctor had told me that I would probably never have children um, because I had PCOS. And um, so then telling Caleb, you know, when we were dating, because I just didn't want to go into a marriage and not have told somebody that and tell them that. And he said, well, we'll see what happens, you know. Well, <clears throat> so went into marriage knowing that, but knowing that trusting God that he would, you know, to do whatever we need to do. So starting in on my journey here, um, we decided right after we were married, right away that we were not going to stop um, that because we were, you know, we had no idea, had no promise of being able to have a baby. So uh, about a year, 
a little over a year into our marriage, had never had not gotten pregnant, and with little concerns, went to the doctor. They started me on a medication metformin to try to smooth things out, see if it would help. Didn't help, just made me sick and want to eat all the time. And then took another medication, um, Clomid, which was to try to help things come along. First time, didn't do anything, made things worse. Second time, uh, second round of it, didn't do anything. And they were getting ready to send me to a um, fertility specialist. So this is almost two years into our marriage and getting ready to go to fertility specialist. And then like the week before that appointment, found out I was expecting for the first time. And um, then canceled that appointment. And then the next day I started miscarrying and I miscarried about four and a half, five weeks. It was early, early pregnancy, of course. But of course I was so excited because we've been trying for almost two years at this point in time. And so lost that baby very quickly. But at the same time, it was an excitement for me because I knew that I could get pregnant at that point in time. And that was a big thing. So I feel like those two months of having taken for those specific hard hitting fertility medications had prepared my body and got my body like, okay, this is what you're supposed to do. And then it was finally able to go forth and do it. So then um, nobody ever said after that, you should take a break. No, never. Just okay. So which was fine. I mean, it was okay. Cause like I said, I wasn't sad. It was just like a, okay, we can do this thing. So then I um, went into the net. I got pregnant quickly. Well, it was two months later. I was pregnant again. And I was able to carry that baby. Um, well, I carried the baby to 14 weeks, but that baby didn't stop growing around 10 weeks. And um, it was a very stressful because then, you know, I was losing another baby still hadn't been able to have a baby as well as um, some distress with that. It was a longer, long drawn out miscarriage. It was not a quick miscarriage. It took um, quite a while. And, um, one of my sister-in-laws was pregnant. And so that was a little hard at the time, as well as, um, my brother was visiting when I finally found out that we were losing the baby. Um, and then they said, okay, we need to schedule you for DNC. And I just was not ready. They were not, I, I don't know. They didn't give me time to really think through it and to be able to process that information. Um, so that I needed to, you know, I just need a day. And so they said, okay, we'll call us tomorrow and we'll schedule. Well, that night there was an unexpected ice storm, a very, very bad ice storm. And so we were supposed to be calling to schedule a DNC, but instead I ended up miscarrying over that through that night and we could not leave our, we couldn't leave our area. And thankfully I was able to get some pain medications. Um, and basically what I, what I didn't realize then, but later I was able to realize was that I was going through labor and to deliver that baby. Uh, like I said, I did not realize at all at the time what it was because I had never experienced that. But it was labor, just contractions, just exactly timeable contractions. And finally, when my water broke and then the baby was delivered. But like I said, I had no idea, even as a nurse, because I'm a nurse, but I did not put two and two together. That's what my body is feeling until after my second baby. And then I realized. But we can get to that later. So anyway, lost that baby and was very, very heartbroken because we had um, just picked up the crib, had been decorating the room, baby's room, but processed, you know, sat there and finally just let myself cry and had my, you know, had Caleb take my brother out of the house and just let myself cry for a couple hours. And then it was better. Well, I say it was perfect. It was no. Did anybody ever once mention to me, it's going to be normal to be sad? Nope. Nothing, nothing whatsoever. Just okay, on with life. So um, it was only about two months later, I was pregnant again with Hannah that time. And going through the pregnancy, they, um, they did a few things different. Um, and I was able to start on progesterone very early with Hannah. Um, and I think that helped to get that her pregnancy off to a better start for sure. Um, but by then, like I said, I had already lost two babies within the same year. And so my body was tired. My body had been depleted quite a bit from already having lost the two babies. And once again, nobody had ever even suggested, really, you might need some time to let your body recuperate. Um, so got to about a little over 20 weeks pregnant with Hannah and started having swelling and some difficulties um, with high blood pressure. And I kept telling them, look, I'm swollen. And they kept saying, oh, honey, it's summer. 
it's hot, it's normal. And I kept saying, no, it's not that hot. This is May, this is June. I'm not working out in 900 degree weather. I'm working inside. I'm doing, in. you know, I'm not hot. I'm staying cool. I'm keeping my feet up when I can, but my feet will barely fit in shoes. And they just kept blowing me off and never once even said this could be something serious. Which again, I'm a nurse. I probably should have known. But when it's you, it, when you're on your own, you know, it's yourself, you just don't think about those things the same way. Um, so finally, um, got to be 26 weeks and I guess it would have been like 26 weeks and one day pregnant and just in the middle of the night woke up and was in such pain. I started to try to take a shower and just sitting on my husband came in cause he came in the shower in the bathroom seeing like what's going on. And I was just sitting on the floor in the shower, just crying in pain. And he drove way too fast down the interstate, taking me to the emergency room because we had called the the doctor and they're like, oh, just we'll check you out. It's probably nothing. I mean, but I was, it was ridiculous. So um, got in there and they quickly checked me. And within a few minutes, they knew there was a problem because my blood pressure was way high. And there was, they couldn't even read the amount of proteins that I had in my urine. Um, and they had to transfer me to a different hospital because the hospital that I went to was the hospital that I worked at, but they did not deliver, um, preemie babies, uh, at least not that early. So they transferred me to the, across the street to the hospital that did. And there was a lot of stress in that because my insurance did not cover very well at the other, at the other hospital because they were the competition. My insurance covered at the hospital that I worked at, even though they could not provide the, um, they were not able to provide the services and that did not seem to matter to them whatsoever. Um, so then uh, they were able to get me through to the next five days and then um, five days or four days and they decided to uh, induce me, which was the most ridiculous decision. Your body is not ready before third trimester to deliver a baby whatsoever. And um, just decided, I think it was an attempt to appease me because I, it was crushing my thoughts of ever having a natural birth. And they just said, okay, fine. We'll, you know, we'll just try to induce you. Well, that does not work. If they had just said, look, your body it just stopped and talked and said, hey, when you're this far, you know, you're only not even 27 weeks, the cervix cannot dilate. It's, normal. it's just like normal for this type of um, where you are. Um, anyway, so the doctor tried to, even break my water. He tried forcing dilation, all sorts of things that don't make sense. But like I said, he was, I don't know what he was doing, trying to appease, I suppose, although not giving me the legit real answers about things. And finally said, oh, by the way, now your kidneys are failing. So, okay, let's go for a C-section. So had a C-section a couple hours later and um, delivered Hannah and she came out screaming and crying and it was a perfect she was breathing on her own at 26 weeks and six days so it was really a miracle to us because that was one day shy of hitting third trimester and um, in a state that at the time um, abortions were legal up until uh, up until third trimester that she legally could have been aborted in our state just because of where she was but yet that little baby came out like i said breathing on her own screaming and crying and with a very strong personality. Um, she would tell the nurses what she liked and did not like quite easily. And um, such as she did not like the blankets over her feet. And that kept annoying the nurses because they wanted her feet covered up. And she did not want that to happen. So anyway, that's that piece. But um, a few days later, my husband had to go in the hospital. And he was not able to be um, supportive just to be able to be there. My mom was there, but, um, still it was tough in that way. So I had Hannah in the NICU and she stayed in the NICU for 10 and a half weeks. And then Caleb in and out of the hospital three times throughout the next 10 and a half weeks for, um, three to five days at a time. Um, and my mom only was able to stay with me for about a week, maybe a week and a half after I had Hannah. So about a week and a half after I had Hannah at 10 days, I started driving again because it was needed. And, um, at two and a half weeks after 
Um, Caleb was back in the hospital a second time, and I had I went back to work at two and a half weeks after a C-section because nobody if they had said, well, you should be on you know light duty. But when I talked to them, I was like, well, yes, I want to save some of my sick leave, you know, for when she comes home so I can enjoy my baby when she's home. And they're like, oh, well, then you'll need to go ahead and work now to make that work. It, it was not. And I'm, you know, I was like, well, got him in the hospital. I've got her in the hospital. OK, I'll work part time. So they put me on light duty. and I was doing desk duty. But still, I was back to work two and a half weeks after a C-section with my baby and my husband, both in separate hospitals. So the stress of all that, looking back on it now, not once did anybody even ask me. I mean, they may have said, oh, how are you doing? But not once did they say, really, emotionally, how are you? You know, I'd physically, okay, I'm getting a little tired, but it's getting better. But really to stop and say, how are you coping? There was one non-medical friend who just kind of asked me, how are you coping? And was supportive in that way. But other than that, not a single medical person throughout the whole situation asked how I was emotionally. Um, and, you know, at that time, I kind of thought, okay, I'm a strong young woman. I'm a nurse. I can buck up and I can do this thing. And basically that's what I did. Now, was it a healthy way of doing it? Probably not. I, <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think I could certainly have used a little more, uh, a lot more support. Um, you know, my church and my community came around me and, cooked meals for us. And those, I, I certainly cannot complain about that. We had family support. We had, you know, lots of support from, like I said, family, church, community, all around us and loving on us in many different ways. But the medical team, there was not the support for me um, at all. Like I said, physically, pretty much, but emotionally, no, it was, it was just not there. Um, the NICU nurses were. And remind me again, this was the, um, this was like the 2006, yeah, 2000 time, 2007. Yeah, 2007. Time frame, yes. So um, yeah, a few years ago, but still not I mean, 15 years ago. So a while ago, but not terribly long ago. Um, anyway, so some of the NICU nurses were nice and some of them were not so nice because, so some of them, it would be rubbing my mommy emotions the wrong way because it wasn't just about how I felt, but I was also having to pump every two to four hours to be able to get any milk for her. She never learned how to breastfeed the entire time. Um, she, her, I guess because she was such a preemie and what I didn't know at the time of how to work with her well, when she got home, um, she just never was able to figure out breastfeeding. It barely even bottle feeding. I mean, she was a messy bottle feeder the entire time that poor child so and she didn't care to eat and she's 15 and she probably still pretty much doesn't care to eat that's just her personality too uh so i, I don't think it was just from being a preemie i think it's just also who she is um and the nicu doctors they're doctors in that mamas are not their necessarily their uh forte the babies are so sometimes they would say things that were you know hard and hurtful and they just didn't know how to say it in a more um, mama way, I guess, a supportive way. Like I said, some of the nurses were very supportive and that was helpful, but they certainly were not all supportive. And that would have been a lot easier along the way for me. So anyway, 10 and a half weeks later, she got out of the hospital and then my husband was able to be, he was home and uh, significantly improving at that point, And it was wonderful. So I was able to take the rest of my maternity leave, which was only actually about two weeks at that point in time. Um, because I had kind of short part-timed it throughout the whole 10 and a half weeks of her in the hospital. But then at the end of that two, uh, two weeks of my maternity leave, that's when Sarah came and I was able to be the nanny for Hannah. And I was able to go down to working part-time, no longer working full-time after I had Hannah. So Sarah would take care of her three or four days a week. And, um, usually, and then Caleb could fill in when as need be as well, which was helpful. Um, and then, after that, honestly, did not even think about birth control or anything, not only just because we didn't, we wanted to continue our family, but I know we at the, kind of did say at the same time, okay, it was so hard to do this the first time, it's probably going to be hard the second time. Which, you know, I looking back, I don't know if it was, 
what it was exactly, but uh, God surprised us. And so not too terribly quickly, but um, re- I was pregnant again less than a year later with Abigail. And so Abby and Hannah are 16 months apart. Um, actually, Hannah did not learn how to walk until she was 19 months. So I had Abby and Hannah for three months unable to walk. <laughs> so that was quite it felt very close, even though they were 16 months apart. Uh, or Sorry, no, actually, yeah, they were 16 months apart. It just felt like I had almost Irish twins because it was more like 13 months apart in some ways. So it was um, <clears throat> a bit challenging that way. Um, but uh, a few weeks into my pregnancy with Abigail, I went to the doctor and I said, okay, I want to do what I did the last time. Like, I don't want to go down that path. And he goes, where are you going to? And I said, whoa, 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 there's got to be some things that I can at least try to do. He goes, no, it's just a matter of when you're going to have this. You're going to have preeclampsia. It's just, let's just hope it's not as early or earlier than the last time. And I said, I'm not taking that for an answer. And then it happened as I was walking out that one of the nurses said a little something that set me off to realize that some of the things that the doctor had, the way he had done things in the office was because his golf game was far more important than my baby. Like he had chosen when he was going to induce me only based off of when he usually plays golf. And the way she said it, I went, Oh no, no. Okay. That was it. That just made me change, you know, make a plan. And I had asked, can I get in with a high risk doctor right away? And he said, Oh no, they won't see you until um, the baby is uh, viable. And I said, well, when is that? And he said, well, when she's, when you're 24 weeks, they'll consider seeing you. And I said, I was having preeclampsia symptoms from 20 weeks. I can't wait till 24 weeks. That's not going to happen. He goes, well, nobody will see you. So I decided to take matters in my own hands. And I called a different high-risk doctor and got in with a different high-risk doctor in Kansas City. And he was an amazing doctor who said, no. This doesn't necessarily have to happen again. Now, can we 100% say we're going to stop it? No. But, yeah, let's look at things. Let's see what we can do. Let's try some stuff. And it was so just encouraging to know that I wasn't necessarily 100% going down that route again. Um, And so what he did, um, he looked at all my ultrasounds that I'd had with Hannah. He goes, well, hello, you had a blood clot. In right there in the uterine artery in your last ultrasound with Hannah, he said, you can see every time from when, from um, 20 weeks on, you had a blood clot in there. So I think that this clotting issue may be why you went into preeclampsia. And so he started me on, he said, all we have to do is you start taking baby aspirin at 13 weeks and that will help. So started taking baby aspirin at 13 weeks and the pregnancy went along wonderfully. And so then I got to that viability phase and I had in the uh, meantime was able to get a different OBGYN who I believe was far more supportive and was far more supportive. And the way he was far more supportive was not so much just, okay, how do we need to help you? But what do you want to be able to do to have a successful pregnancy and listening to my wants, my wishes, my needs. And I really appreciated that. And the way he was doing it was so interesting because in the end he knew I wanted to have a VBAC and that in any hospital in Topeka at the time, they would not allow VBACs. He said, I would be happy to VBAC you, but I can't VBAC you in the hospital. He said, the only thing he said, if you want to sit out in the car and labor until you come in and say, let's do this now, then I'll do that. He said, we'll just bypass the system. He said, but you might need a little more support than that. So he said, I'm going to tell you that across, he said, actually, I'm not going to tell you. He said, I'm not telling you <clears throat> across the street, there's a birth center that you can be back at. Um, and then he helped me get in there because by then they didn't like taking people third trimester for obvious reasons. Cause they didn't, you know, they wanted to be able to be more supportive early on, but he called them and talked to them and told them my story. And they took me at, I think it was like 30 weeks or even 32 weeks. It was pretty late for them to take me. So it was nice that they were able to, willing to get me in, willing to take me on as a patient and willing to be back me. So um, went on to have Abigail at uh, about three hours before my due date. So she almost made it to that 40 weeks. Perfect. And not a single um, 
issue at all with the preeclampsia at all with Abigail. Um, and she was a wonderful VBAC. Um, that was pretty simple with just a regular less than eight hour labor or right around eight, right around eight hour labor. And it was a great VBAC. And it was when I had her, it was like right after within moments of delivering her that that thought came back to me about that miscarriage, the second miscarriage. And I went, what I just went through, that was exactly what that had been. And it occurred to me. So it was kind of like this bittersweet of I've done this before kind of feeling, but that yet was my first, even though I'd had Hannah and she was a C-section, totally different experience. When I had a baby, a natural birth, I went, oh, okay. So I have done this before a little bit. And I felt like it was a such a different experience. Um, it was very much more happy, natural experience. Um, but then, of course, with Abigail, um, within, well, we started sending pictures to my family and you know, all the family started meeting her. And when she was first born, she was a meconium baby. So she had this really dark hair immediately. It was, But then as we got it in her in a tub and started washing her hair, the midwife was like, wow, maybe she it doesn't have dark hair. Maybe it's kind of lighter and just stained. Okay. But it was nighttime when she was born. It was all kind of darker lights and calm environment and, you know, not a whole lot of light at all. And we went home and then, you know, sent pictures and stuff to family and family started meeting here. And the first person to say anything to me about anything was my mom. My mom said, Sarah, her hair is very white. Did anybody say that she might be albino? And I was like, what? No, she's just blonde. They said she's blonde. Yeah, come on, you know, whatever. And nobody else had said anything about it. And again, as a nurse, I should have known, but I was looking at my own baby and just didn't think about it that way. Of course, in my head, I was still seeing the meconium stained little head that I'd seen from the moment of birth. Um, but when she was took, we took her to the pediatrician when she was six days old and he, or maybe even at two days old, I think we took her at two days old and he like immediately flashed a light in her eyes and he goes, <gasps> and like stopped. And he's like, you need to see an eye doctor. I was like, what? And, um, come to find out the um, this pediatrician um, he was from India and in India is one of the, one of the countries with the fewest number of albinos. And so he had never even seen someone with albinism. <laughs> he knew what it was, thankfully, and he was sweet about it, but he didn't know. I mean, like he clearly told me, I've read it in the textbooks and that's all. Um, he said, I think she might have albinism. He said, but I really don't know what that means because outside of just reading in a textbook, I haven't done a lot of research that way. So um, got her in with a, um, quickly, of course, with the ophthalmologist. At first they said, oh, it'll be six months before we can see her, which seemed overwhelming because we needed to know what was going on. Well, thankfully they had a cancellation. And at six days I drove her because Caleb had to work. So I went by myself to Lawrence with her to take her to the op optometrist or ophthalmologist. And the ophthalmologist was a less than helpful um, bedside manner. Uh, I think she was young, kind of unsure of herself. Now that I, you know, years later, know a little bit more um, and just did not know how to communicate in a loving, kind way to a parent, the information that might be a little bit shocking. So even though I kind of had in my mind, okay, she probably has albinism just from what the pediatrician said, for her to look at me and to say, your child will never be normal. She will never drive. She'll probably not be able to be in a regular classroom of school. Um, she will struggle her entire life. And like, that was it. And there was, there was no information, no helpful information. No, here's places you can go to get uh, more information. Nothing. Just, yep, that's how it is. We'll see you back in a few months. It, I came home from that appointment crying. And up until then, like I said, it had been such a happy experience for me. I felt like we had you know, defeated the problems before. And then it was just like, everything kind of came crashing down for me and not that I was upset with my baby. I love my baby, but just the unknowns. Um, and through all this, you know, the midwives were there to support me, but there was never really even a significant discussion of how is this affecting you mama mentally? You know, how are you like a detailed specific, you know, they, they the, the, I think, back in that point. So this was 2008. 
it was very much, they would ask a very generalized, how you feeling, mom? And that that was it. It was not a more detailed discussion. Um, so, and I think I was so focused on just trying to figure it all out that I really couldn't think beyond that and just being the tough mama, which was, you know, what I thought I should do. Um, yeah. Cause at that time I felt, you probably felt like you didn't have a choice. It's like, this is, this is it. I mean, the way that it is, it's like, what? Yeah. I just got to roll with right. it. Um, yeah. but was there ever a point uh, like amongst just what the span of two, two years, if that was there ever a point amongst all of that, that you actually sat down and thought to yourself, is, is this my wow moment of this is the rest of my life that I'm always going to have these, these kind of one-off pregnancies or that I'm going to have these children with issues that all the medical professionals are telling me is a no, problem? No, because I, um, I mean, a few months later, there was a, okay, are you going to really do this again? Are you crazy? And like, yeah, why not? That's we're happy for it. Partially because we were able to have support. We were able to have the support from family, from friends, from community, as well as community in that somebody within our community that we lived in happened to be related to another person who had a child with albinism that lived around Kansas City. And she got her on the phone to me within like a couple days. I mean, Abby was barely a week old. We had just gotten the diagnosis and she's like, oh, you need to talk to this niece of mine. She has this child with albinism. And that lady could talk. I'm telling you, she talked to me for over two hours about her child with albinism. And it was encouraging because she was able to say, yeah, my child's normal. I mean, yes, she has struggles with learning, but every child has struggles of some sort. Everybody has some issue. She's like, my kid's issue is vision issues. And we don't go out in the sun, but you know what? That's okay. We have, she says, but you know what? This other kid of mine has ADD. This other kid of mine has this, has, you know, these issues. Every person has issues of some sort. It's just what you do and how you deal with them. Just so they can be happy, healthy people. And then she's like, okay, so you got to follow my blog. So I followed her blog and followed her on Facebook and these kinds of things. And that was helpful to see that, yeah, they were leading a completely normal life. So that helped. And then um, eventually we were able to see a different doctor and get in with some um, early childhood education teachers who came to the house and they educated me much better on what that might mean for my child and what options we had for my child. And then thankfully, I think just that education piece of knowing, um, not being scared to seek out the information that you need, and um, just continuing to push for what was right for your child, um, no matter what everybody was saying around you, and um, not letting what the doctors say totally get you down, because what one doctor says is not necessarily what every doctor is going to say. And um, just then as Abigail grew and got started to see her personality more, and her personality was just very hyper, very excitable, and into everything very quickly, um, and uh, Sarah helped take care of Abby at the beginning, just for a short time before she went off to college. So she got to see a lot of that exciting Abigail. Um, from like six weeks old, it was like holding a live fish. I mean, it was like constant movement. She was just a very excited child. Um, so got to see who she was. I do remember that. And it was hilarious to watch because you'd have Hannah over there in the corner, just playing quietly by herself, just mm-hmm. kind of hanging out. And then you've got this, this is so yeah. hyper baby. <laughs> Who is like wanting to go all over, doesn't care if she's, you know, a lifeless limp. She can't do anything. She's like, I'm going to find a way to do it, whether you are going to help me or not. So deal with it. Yeah. So, I mean, I went back to working part time and life just kind of continued. Um, then um, about, let's see, it would have been early or no, it would have been August of 2009. So Abby was not quite a year old. Um, H1N1 hit the whole world. And um, Caleb and I both got H1N1 the same weekend. And we were not, we were so sick. We weren't even able to take care of our kids. So thankfully Caleb's mom came and took them and took care of them. Um, But I didn't know that when we got H1N1 that I was early pregnant again. And um, with shortly after we got better, I found out that I was pregnant and then right away lost the baby within a couple days. I think that the high fever that I had that early in pregnancy caused that baby to be lost. And it was a sad pregnancy, you know, a sad loss. But at the same time, 
I guess I could say I was a little relieved in a strange way, just because knowing that the risks of for a baby, if the mom has had that high of a fever that early on in pregnancy are very detrimental to their development. Um, and so just knew that God had done the right thing with that pregnancy, even though it was not emotionally, you know, the best thing for me at the time, I knew that that was what needed to happen with that pregnancy just because of the detrimental issues that probably had happened because my fever got over 104, um, for most of one day. So it was a, a really bad, really, really bad virus. Um, and then Abigail got H1N1 and, um, was very sick for a couple, uh, almost a week. Um, but then got better from that and just, um, the next October, I will never forget. I know when Noah was, uh, came about, uh, because it was my anniversary and uh, so got pregnant in October again. So it was just a couple months later and then went through that pregnancy, just very similarly to Abigail's. But that time I wasn't having to go to the high risk doctor because we had a plan in place. So I felt like, OK, if we follow the same pattern with him, with this one, we can do it. And sure enough, just followed the same pattern. But this time just following with the uh, midwives at the birth center and everything went great. And then he's my kid that got past his due date. Um, and he was just kind of comfy and cozy in there and just decided he'd stay there. And that's kind of his personality. He gets comfy and cozy and prefers to stay home and doesn't like changes in the world. So that's how he still is. It's kind of funny at 12 and four and a half years old now. Um, and then, um, he was a very fast labor finally. Well, again, comfy, cozy. And then like a five days of, uh, am I ever going to have this kid on and off? And, um, but Actually, right before um, Noah was born, Caleb had graduated from grad school, and then he went ahead and moved to Western Kansas um, and was coming home on the weekends. And I was home as we were trying to sell our house, and I was finishing up working before um, we were waiting till after I had Noah, and then I would move out to Western Kansas with him with the kids. So he was back and forth. So he was in Western Kansas when I went to labor with Noah. And he like made the six six hour trip in about four and a half hours and got back and then labor stopped. And we went all over the entirety of the county and the next county over on some very bumpy roads and did anything and everything possible to go ahead and have this kid because I was miserable. And finally said, okay, we're going to do the, um, you know, castor oil thing because that's what they were going to have me do at the birth center. But we're going to take a half dose at home just to test it out. So Caleb made me a burrito with some guacamole with the stuff in it. And um, then I took a nap and I woke up about an hour later and I was like, Oh, yep. Now's the time. So we called um, my mother-in-law and this is the one time that she came in the house and she said, I knew it was time because Sarah was quiet and Caleb was hurrying. So um, we moved on and then we got to the birth center and they said, um, both of our rooms are full, but you can go upstairs and we'll take you upstairs. We, we've laid a mattress on the floor in the waiting room. We'll see, and we'll just see what ha happens. He was born 20 minutes later. He was the second baby ever born on the floor in their waiting room. And, um, of course they did not have a full bathroom upstairs, just a small little half bath. So they pulled out a little pan that they had would cook in and there's like a frying pan. And we washed his hair, washed his little head in that. Um, but so when I was pregnant with Noah, we had picked two names for him. We had picked that um, Caleb liked Gideon. But if he had albinism, I wanted him to be Noah um, because um, there's some some apocryphal ish things that are in the Bible. They're not in the Bible, but they're in the Apocrypha in additional writings that are in the Catholic Bible and in some other writings that indicate that possibly Noah from the Bible had albinism. And I had known that. And the organization for albinism nationwide is called Noah. And so Caleb finally said, OK, we have a 75 percent chance because we knew that we were genetic carriers now that we would not have a child with albinism. So he thought he, he was going to get it good when he said, if he doesn't have albinism, it'll be Gideon. But if he has albinism, it'll be Noah. And I said, I'll take it. I'm good with that one. I just had a feeling. I just had one of those mama feelings. And that was all there was to it. So the moment he was born, Caleb looked at me before I could even see him. He goes, guess what? We've got a Noah. 
So Noah was the second one born with albinism. And um, it didn't matter as much to me because by that point I was used to Abigail. I was used to the way she worked. I thought we've done this. We can do this again, right? We're good. And it was great. But what the piece that I wasn't ready for was that um, we moved a month after he was born. And maybe, maybe it was six, almost six weeks. It wasn't even quite six weeks after um, we moved out to Western Kansas. Our support that we'd had of our family, our community, our church, um, it wasn't there, which was fine because they were all over the phone and all that, but we were not physically with them. We had a new community a new quickly got a new church um, and started developing family, it felt like there, but it took time anytime you make those moves. Um, and I feel like um, that was a hard place for me because the things that I had been used to, um, my home that I had brought my first two babies home to that I was so attached to when we would go back there to visit, I cried every time. And at the time I didn't realize what it was. I look back on it. No. Okay. That was a little bit of postpartum depression going on there. But at the time totally didn't get it. I just thought I'm just homesick a little bit, but didn't think about the fact, huh? Yeah. I just had a baby. Never was really, you know, really occurred to me. And I saw the midwives, but I think the most of the discussion was about the fact that we were moving and all the different changes going on and needing to find new doctors and needing, um, you know, they asked, how you doing? I'm like, oh, just so busy, you know, with three little kids, three and under and in the process of a move and all this. And I think that was where the discussion was, which was fine. They didn't, you know, didn't really think, but I didn't think either. It just really never occurred to me. What I had and the house that we moved into was like 850 square feet with three little people. Our bed would not even fit in one of the bedrooms. Uh, so our bed was in the dining room and uh, it was very cramped quarters. Um, we made it work, but the reason was because we hadn't been able to sell our house back at our other place. And we had moved quickly and had not been able to find a larger place yet in that community. Um so just made it work and um, started getting settled in there and got, a, got, a, got, you know, started making progress on being settled in. And then um, it was about, you know, about a year, not quite a year later, I guess about 10, 11 months later, pregnant again and started going, we cannot have four children in this house. This is not going to happen. So we started looking for another house to rent and found another slightly larger house to rent. and. Um, about a month before I was due with Ada, we finally moved again, just down the road, four blocks away. No big deal. Right. But you're totally upsetting a whole household with three little kids and finally getting stuff from one. Our stuff had been in four locations, getting it all finally to one location. And then of course the, um, nesting hit at the same exact time as moving. So in my mind, I wanted to get everything just right for this new house. So I made all these lists of I need this and this and this and this done. And when we had moved to Western Kansas, um, also there was not a birthing center. Um, the town we lived in did not have, a, a, well, the hospital they had did not deliver babies. There was a town over about 20 miles that did deliver babies, but they did not allow VBACs. Once again, the doctor there, who was my doctor, said, oh, I'd be happy. If you want to just sit in the parking lot, you can wait there until it's time, and then we'll just do it the last second. And I was like, I don't think I can do that. No, I've done this twice before. Pretty good at by now, I think, but don't think I'm quite up for that one. And he said, well, can you find a midwife? And so I found a midwife, but she was uh, about an hour and 45 minutes away. And so she agreed to follow me as long as I had a local doctor. And so my doctor said, sure, I'll work with her. I know her, no problem. They were both supportive. And that was a great option. The best option for me at the time. I can't imagine a different option. Although <laughs> now looking back and I'm like, it was kind of scary, but uh, that's what we did. So, um, Aid, uh, we moved into the new house. And so about 10 days after we moved to the new house, I looked one night at my list about 10 o'clock at night and went, I finished everything on my list. And it, now that it's kind of funny. Now I'm like, I was, I wasn't like excited about this. I was frustrated with it. My first thought was I'm going to have to make a new list tomorrow. What am I going to put on this list? Because I finished everything. I had made curtains. I had done everything. We unboxed, unpacked 
everything. We were totally settled in that house. It's really kind of crazy to think all that I did at Huge Pregnant at 10, you know, 10 days before uh, my due date at this point in time. So I was 10 days before due date and realized I have nothing on my list. Okay, fine. I'll find something to put on this list tomorrow. Um, and then went to bed like 10, 30, 11 that night. And at 2.30 in the morning, I woke up and went to the restroom and I went, something was a little different. That maybe that was my water break. No, it wasn't my water breaking. It was just, I just had to go to the bathroom. Got back in bed and I started realizing that was a contraction. I don't think that was just a Braxton Hicks in, huh, feels like I'm like leaking a little bit or wet in the world. Well, over the next 20 minutes, I realized I'm in labor. This is crazy. And I think my water's broken. And so um, I was going to call the midwife, but I also woke up my husband. He goes, just go back to sleep. You're just having Braxton Hicks. We've done this before. You're fine. I'm like, this is different. This is the, so he, thankfully he did wake up and help me call the midwife. And um, the midwife said, um, problem is I am about three hours from you. I'm up by Hayes right now because I'm on my way to go deliver another mom who is a first time mom, but that's okay. I'll turn and come south to you right away because since you're not a first time mom, you'll probably have this baby quickly. And then she also said, well, we also have another problem. I can't deliver your baby because there was a complaint about my license just yesterday. And since you were, you were 10 days early, I didn't know, you know, I didn't think quite, I was going to call you tomorrow, but I didn't think we were quite there yet. And so, um, legally I don't have a midwifery license today. And okay. She said, but I'll come down and we'll figure this out. We'll go to the hospital together if we need to, or whatever. And so we were trying to decide whether we should go to the hospital. I thought, that's fine. I'll get in the bathtub, slow things down, right? Oh, no. That was the one time getting in the bathtub, slowing this. It didn't work. It wasn't slowing things down whatsoever. It sped things up like crazy. Then, um, so she was born about less than two hours after I had the first contraction quickly. And no, the midwife did not make it, but she talked Caleb through it and Caleb delivered her. And it was a good thing that we were planning to have a home birth because there was all the birth supplies right there in the house. And she said, you know that box that you have? Go get it. You need it. And there's this little thing in there for cord clamping. Let's find the tuck, you know. So anyway, she talked Caleb through it the whole way and we delivered the baby. And then um, she did get there. And so the, the crazy thing is she was a nurse practitioner in addition to being midwife. So even though her midwifery degree didn't wouldn't help because she couldn't, or him, her midwifery certification could not help because legally she couldn't deliver baby because of her nurse practitioner degree, she could do postpartum care. So she was able to come and help with that, which is a good thing because I started having quite a bit of um, bleeding with her. And so she got there right in time to help with all that and save the day and we were fine to go. Um, so the interesting thing is, I think after eight, it was the first time that I realized, I think this might be some postpartum issue, like depression kind of situation. That's the first time that I ever realized it. Um, nobody ever really asked me still about it, like outright, specifically talked to me about emotional, mental health. But um, I realized I'm overwhelmed. And this is affecting how I am able to process the world and how I am able to process just life. I should be loving life right now. And I'm not. And, um, and I got that. Um, so thankfully I was able to talk to a friend and say that she said, how can, can I help you somehow? I was like, yes. Can you please take my other three kids for just a couple of hours? And then if you could do that, if I can just spend some one-on-one time with this baby by myself, I think I just need that. I mean, like, I don't want you to take this baby because I want to be able to feed her or whatever and rest. I won't be able to rest if she's not here with me. But if I can just have a few hours off, that's what I need. And she was a babysitter. And so she said, sure, I don't have my other kids this week. Bring them on over. So she kept my kids for like four hours. And I was just had so such a good time taking it easy. I made myself not clean the house or any of that kind of stuff during that time just focused on my baby and resting and took some pictures of her that I still love just because it was just like 
when the other three were crawling all, all over the place, it was impossible to just get pictures of her on my own and dressed her up in cute little outfits and just kind of had fun playing dollies with her. And that helped so much. Uh, our church continued to be supportive there, very supportive and brought meals and they were awesome. And um, I will tell you the one thing, if anybody who is a, a support system listens to this, this is the one thing that really helped me. Um, this one older mom came in and said, um, she was delivering a meal and she didn't ask me. She didn't say, can I help you somehow? No, she just started washing my dishes. She did not ask. I said, oh, no, I got that. She goes, no, no, you go sit down. I've got this. I'm like, oh, I hate to feel, have you wash my dishes. We can do that. And she goes, no, I am here to deliver a meal and I will help you by doing this. I will help you with your wash, uh, with your dishes and I will help you with your laundry and then I will go home. And like, she didn't ask, she just, but it was very kind, but very firm. And that was what I, and I just, I about broke down and crying at that moment because I just went, Oh man, that's what I needed. Somebody just to tell me you're going to do it and do it and not ask permission to do it. Um, and that was huge. And that, I will say at that moment, I went, when I become that mom, you know, that when I become a, a grandma age, that is who I want to be. That is what I want to be. So I have kept that in the back of my mind, kind of like the, that concept of, you know, Mary pondered these things and, you know, had that as one of those things that in my back of my mind, I know that. I'm getting to that point in my life now, finally, but that's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. Yeah, I remember the entire, all of my memories of, of the postpartum recovery was that I remember the the people that showed up and didn't mm-hmm. ask. They knew what to do. They made a beeline for that mm-hmm. kitchen. They made a beeline for the laundry room. They just yeah. knew. And yeah, same, same feeling. Because yeah. when you're in that moment, you feel like you need to be strong for the situation. You need to be independent, but you don't need to be independent. You don't need to be so strong. You've already been strong and you are being strong regardless. You just need to let some other people help you. That's the time to do that. So that was a huge thing. Um, and so just went on with life and Ada just grew quite well. And so then... James came along not too long after. So he would have been the end of um, 2013. So not quite two years later, a little bit more of a gap between them, but not much. Um, So um, normal pregnancy with James. He was born at home. The midwife was there with him. Um, The only difficulty with him was that I was, uh, went into labor in one night and then nothing it stopped and stalled out and they tried everything but we um we're still at home so there was really nothing else much to do she said oh you're right at your due date it's okay just let's wait so for a week i was um dilated to an eight and yeah i was miserable absolutely miserable and went to my doctor just for a regular checkup and he checked me and he looks at me he goes you're you've got to be miserable you're at an eight and i said been here for a week and he's like go home have the midwife come have her break your water i'm like i don't want to do that she doesn't we don't want to do that because then you know he may not be able to be delivered she go he goes don't hit any bumps on the way home you're gonna have this baby today and i'm like oh that's a good thought okay so sure enough the midwife was happy to come later that day and then she could not get my water broken Ended up, he was double bagged. Um, They think what had happened was that he was probably a twin very early on and that the other baby had reabsorbed uh, very, very early on. And because that then left um, double sacking around him. And so they finally had, she actually had to get Caleb to help to break the first bag because it had not had the pressure on it of his head. So that external bag was super, super thick because of that. And then once that one broke, then they were able to break the second bag, which was much easier to break because that's the one that had been filled so full. And then he was born like an hour and an hour and a half later, basically because he came quickly because he was hardy basically right there. Um, and, uh, I felt like everything was, you know, quite normal with him. And I don't, I don't really remember having any specific difficulties um, emotionally after him. I just feel like, okay, we've done four. We can do five. We're good to go. Um, 
So nothing significant after that. Alrighty. So that, my friends, is the end of part one for Sarah M's story. Um, if you've made it this far, uh, I very much appreciate you listening to uh, Sarah's story and listening to her uh listening to her experience up to this point. Like I said, we're going to release part two of kind of a turning point in her, her motherhood experience um, next week. So stay tuned for that. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the postpartum. Wow. If you like what you heard and you'd like to support this podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe and follow me on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow me on my Facebook page at the postpartum. Wow. This way, you'll be notified when new episodes are dropped every other Tuesday. Feel free to also leave a review sharing what you liked best, and this will help other listeners know what to expect when checking out this podcast. Until next time, friends, may your messy buns be on point and your coffee stay warm. Mm -hmm.